Amen. If you have a Bible, if you want to grab one of the Bibles on the chair, open to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at the end of chapter 9 here today, beginning at verse 38. While you're turning there, let me just say we've, we've been studying the gospel of Mark and we've come through these first eight chapters that really focus on the question of who is Jesus. Jesus is demonstrating his power, his authority, not just to the disciples, but to the, the world around him, to the region around Galilee and even into the surrounding countryside where there are um, pagans and, and other Gentiles. And then once you get to Mark chapter 11, it's Jesus entering into Jerusalem for that final week of his life. It's oftentimes called the Passion Week. A lot happens in those, those few days. But right in between these, chapters 9 and 10, they're sandwiched in Mark, these, this concise, intensely focused time where Jesus is primarily just with his disciples. He's got his 12, he withdraws, he can withdraw when he wants to, goes into the houses, goes out into the countryside, and he's just helping them to make sense of the things that they've seen previously and that they're seeing now. He's preparing them. Three times he tells them, in these two chapters, three times Mark records that he tells them about his death. And his resurrection. And they reject it. And they say we aren't going to let this happen. This isn't our expectation for what the the Christ will be. The Messiah will be. But he uses that. And other circumstances. to, To reorient. Their perspective on life. On death. On sin. On what greatness means, on what goodness is, on what true lasting treasure is, on who the children are, other people who are outcasts in society, and and what all this means for, for this life. You'll notice the passage we read today gets into a description, a graphic description of what hell is, and it's... It's tempting, and I even read this week a, a, a blog from a pastor who's essentially left the faith, but he's still pastoring a church, and he said, I just want to do away with the whole concept of heaven altogether because it takes us out of engaging in the world around us, but a true concept of heaven and of hell never is an escape mechanism actually focuses us on how to live in this present life with a perspective that includes the eternal life. So with that as our introduction, remember we're coming off down from the mountain, the transfiguration where some of the disciples saw Jesus And then the argument when some of the other disciples couldn't cast a demon out. And then last week we looked at what is pride and 
the desire for position and prominence. And really tied in with that comes these few verses that are, are tough to synthesize. They're tough to understand how they fit together, why Mark would put them together. But I want to take time this morning to really think about why these things go together. Let's begin with verse 36 there, even though I put 38 in the bulletin. And, and Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them. He's just with the disciples and maybe a few other people in a house right now. And this child might even be the younger brother of one of the disciples. We don't know, but probably. And, and taking this child in his arms, Jesus said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. God the Father. And John said to him, now John, John doesn't speak up that much, so this is interesting. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now this is interesting, isn't it? The one who is not against us is for us. It's very inclusive. The ones who are not against us. Let me just stop there and point out, you probably... Some of you may know there's another passage where Jesus says anyone who's not for us is against us. Remember when one of the presidents said that about a war? Anybody who's not with us or against us? And you kind of want to know which is it. Because one of them is very inclusive and one of them is very exclusive. But the context of Jesus saying the other one was when people were accusing Jesus of casting out demons in Satan's name. You see, so it's a question of where the power is derived from and where the power is credited to. That's the difference. Jesus is saying, I'm doing it in God's name, my name. Important to understand the distinction, but notice how inclusive this is. Will not soon be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink... Very simple task. Because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If you're very astute in reading along, you notice that we just went from verse 43 to verse 45. 
where is verse 44? Where is verse 46 as well? Those are probably later editions that were included in some manuscripts but are not part of the original Word of God. They are identical to the words of verse 48, sort of poetic repetition there. You will read that when we come to it. It goes on from the hand causing you to sin to say, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We pause just there for a second and make this quick comment because it's not the focus of our sermon, but it's important. One of the attractive other options when thinking about heaven and hell for us is to think that those who go to hell are burned up and their lives end. It's called annihilationism. It's been attractive for even the most respective scholars, biblical pastors and teachers But it's interesting to note through history that those who go down that path and stay down that path usually, in fact, I don't know of any exceptions, they abandon the Word of God altogether eventually. They start to preach their own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. And others gradually realize that that is not consistent, cannot be consistent with what Jesus teaches in the teaching of what hell is. Now, it goes on to say, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. This is God's Word. No, the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, will you help us to understand your word? It seems distant at times and confusing at other times, perfectly clear some of the time. But we know that there is power in your word. Just as the water falls and it it waters the earth and things come up, so your word, when it falls on human hearts, does not fail to accomplish its purposes. Soften our hearts that it would accomplish those purposes in us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, with this introduction, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He varies a little bit on the God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, but he stays consistent with grace and peace. 
grace and peace to you. He writes to his apprentice, Timothy, the young pastor who he's teaching. He adds one other thing, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But never in his formula does Paul add salt to the mix. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's so easy to miss that last part because honestly the the image of cutting off a person's hand and their foot and gouging out an eye is, is so macabre, so graphic. It's like pop art and a masterpiece being in the same exhibit and your eyes are immediately drawn to the pop art. And you miss the masterpiece. They think Halloween is so popular. It's gaudy. It attracts the eye. But also, what does it mean that everyone will be salted with fire? The salt is good, but it's lost its saltiness. This is a it's, it's a mysterious passage. It's confusing. It's not automatically accessible. We, we like salt. We know salt's good. We know that a good salted kind of meat is tasty. Now, I'm not a huge salt fan. I don't add salt to much. Mandy adds salt to everything. She has a better taste than I do. But still, I can appreciate that salt satisfies. After a long run, sweated, you're depleted. The salt is what gives you back your electrolytes. After a good deli sandwich, salted potato chips, great. Even on dark chocolate now, new invention, sea salt. The salt gives a seasoning that's pleasing. And this is true for us just as much as it was back in Jesus' time, I don't know about the sea salt, but the sea salt on dark chocolate, but the rest of it's true. But they had, they had more reason to use salt than just the taste. And this isn't too out of reach. Of course, up until the last hundred years or so in history, salt was the main preservative that people put in food that spoiled. Salt kept meat from going bad. Salt even kept grains, certain grains, from going bad. It was meant to be a preservative. It was meant to communicate when used as an image in the Bible that this was something that lasts. It's flavorful and it lasts. So when we come to the end of this, I want us to focus our attention on this confusing passage, on this more mysterious one, because because if Mark didn't think that his original audience, or Jesus didn't think that his original audience needed explanation for this, it was the type of illustration that would have immediately grabbed them. You know those types of illustrations. What are they? I don't always come up with them, but 
the God on stilts one from a couple weeks ago. A number of you comment about how graphic that was, how, how memorable of an illustration that was. And salt and fire would have been immediately accessible for the audience. This would have been something that pulled together these teachings, that the disciples would have had something of an aha moment that brought these teachings that seemed to be somewhat related, but not all that related, into focus, and even made sense of what's coming next week when we have Jesus teaching about divorce and marriage. If you go back in the Old Testament, back to almost the very beginning, God gave the people of Israel, the people who had been brought out of slavery, that he was making into his nation. He gave them commandments. He gave them religious practices that defined them as a nation. And at the center of that, quite literally and also figuratively, was God's tabernacle, where God's presence dwelled among the people. And he gave them instructions on how to offer sacrifices, both animal sacrifices and grain sacrifices, and also drink sacrifices, wine And he said, when you bring the meat and the grain offerings in, this comes straight from the book of Leviticus, your favorite book to read when you're going through the Bible in a year, straight from the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, you got to it. I know you've gotten to it before you, before you gave up. Verse 13, he says, you shall season your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all of your offerings, so now, now not just the grain, but all of your offerings, meat and grain, you shall offer salt. And this phrase, a covenant of salt, sticks. It lasts. It's preserved. In fact, find in Second Chronicles is being referenced. Ought you not to know that the Lord your God of Israel gave the kingship of Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Again, obscure, but meant to communicate that the kingship of David, a son of David, would be the Christ, the Messiah. The everlasting king. The king that is salted, preserved. All the other kings have died. So when Jesus says, this is something that is to be salty, you are to be salty. He's not just saying your conversation should be interesting to outsiders. You should be funny and have a sharp wit. That's oftentimes how it's interpreted when we hear Paul to the Colossian church saying, may your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person, especially when you're conducting yourselves with outsiders. 
is that when you speak, when you communicate, when you act, all of your life should be seasoned with salt as if it is something that lasts, that is eternal, that is not just fleeting, passing away, spoken of today, forgotten about tomorrow. But that your words and your actions would be salted, would be good. And that they would endure. Now, this is another interesting thing. Now, salt and fire are two of these primary images you get from the Old Testament. But they're also two things that are both bad and good. Right? This saltiness preserves the meat and the grain And it's meant in a very positive light. It preserves the covenant. God's covenants are meant to be lasting covenants. One covenant that God makes with his people builds on another. Until you have the new covenant, the full covenant of Jesus Christ. But God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with with David. God made a, a, a covenant with his His new people, when they return from exile, each of these things does not go away. It builds, and in fact, marriage is called a covenant in the Bible, and that's why the question about divorce comes up next, because it is meant to be an enduring covenant, a lasting covenant. And and the question is asked, why did then did Moses issue a certificate of divorce? And Jesus answers this, it wasn't because of God, it was because of sin. It was because the very definition of sin isn't just stuff that makes God mad. The very definition of sin is that which breaks relationship with God and with people. This isn't my definition. This is Jesus' definition. Summarize the law, Jesus He says, all the law can be summarized. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The commands are meant to tell us how to love. And when we break those commands, it's called sin in the Bible. It's a failure to love. It's a breaking of the relationship. And so Jesus is reorienting his disciples to the things that last. He's coming up on another story. Rich young man. He says, go and follow all the commands. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. The young man says, I've done all those things. He says, go sell all that you have. He's unwilling to do that because his treasure is here now and not forever in his relationship with God, in his relationship with others. Salt lasts. But salt doesn't just last for good, for the purpose of good. Salt lasts on the side of bad as well. Salt is a symbol of dead land. 
Where do you go to mine salt? It's the places where nothing else will grow. When the Roman armies in Jesus' day would conquer a city and they really hated it, the armies would sow the, the fields with salt so that nothing would grow there for years to come. When Lot's wife turns back longing for the sins of the city that she had left, she's turned into a pillar of salt. As if to say, sin, when it's not addressed, when it goes unchecked, when it is allowed to build and grow and spread from your hand to your arm to the rest of your body or from your feet to your legs to your heart or from your eyes down, brings a death that is everlasting as well. no way to recover from it. Fire has a similar effect. Fire is depicted as the unquenchable fire in this passage. Hell is this unquenchable fire. The annihilationism that we spoke of earlier does not destroy things, even worms. They're forever in that fire and never consumed. There was a trash pit in a valley near Jerusalem. The city dump where they would dump everything and they would just keep it burning. (coughs) Just keep it burning. It never went out. It was a picture of this unquenchable fire. And it was called basically the Valley of Gehenna, which is the word for hell. See, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will last forever. The question is, will the fire consume you or will it purify you? This fire being this all-consuming thing is also presented as the very picture of the thing that purifies metal, precious metal, other metals, where the, the dross, the, the things that are impure are burned away so that you only have this refined thing, this, this thing that is of true value. God is presented as this all-consuming fire. His fire for the person who receives him, who doesn't reject him, has the effect on that person of burning away the impurities, burning away the sins. His fire comes and consumes and surrounds you. Like the book of Deuteronomy says, chapter 4, verse 23. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And you go off and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. 
a jealous God. And when you father children and children's children and have grown up in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and provoke his anger, goes on to say, you'll fall away from God. And isn't this interesting? Because I think the greatest temptation for us in life is to try to justify the sins that we can't do away with in our life. It's to try to find a little place for the things that nag us. We try for a long time to stop doing these things, to stop being arrogant toward others, to stop being impatient toward those who need patience, to stop uh, holding back our forgiveness for other people, to stop being prideful or to stop lusting after all the things that are in your friend's house that you really want, or to stop uh, lusting after uh, women or men or a better marriage or something else in life. We try to find little places to hide those things, to say, oh, they're fine. They're not really doing that much damage. But what these things are is they're little idols in our life that we are just placing and We're not putting them up on the mantle. We're hiding them in our closet. Here's the dangerous part. Jesus says, look, these things may seem like you're able to control them. You get by all right. Your your family is still going all right. You're, You're doing fine at your work and you're paying your bills. He says, look, they're having effects not just on you, but on other people around you. When you father children and children's children, when they've grown up in the land, those little things that you hid become big things in their life. Those little things that you wrote off and said, they aren't really important. I'm not going to teach my kids then. Then they build into something else, and then your kids add to those. The most tempting thing in life is to try to call sin not sin. Saying it's fine. It's all fine. But God says this, he, he's a consuming fire. He's going to consume all of those things. And listen, what I'm going to hold you most accountable for isn't just the sin in your life. You think it's just me and you. This is our programmatic default in Western society today. We are autonomous people. It's just between me and God. But he says, here's what's really dangerous. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better if they had a millstone hung around their neck. I don't see millstones very often, but millstones, they're, they're, they're like the weight of one of those barriers you see, the, the movable barriers that have to be moved by a huge machine when you're driving across the Coronado Bridge, the big concrete barriers. That's what a millstone is. 
And the picture here isn't just tying a string or a rope around the neck and throwing the millstone. The picture is putting the millstone on a person's head because a millstone had a hole in the middle so that it could be dragged by a donkey or windmill or something around in a circle and putting that on a person's neck and throwing them into the ocean. And this is what Jesus says about those who cause children to sin and others to sin. He says, look, the children may be off in some of their beliefs. Look, the one who's casting out demons, he may not know as much about me as you know my disciples but don't cause those little ones to sin. Because you are leading them to hell, it would be better if you would die right away. And in fact, this is the whole point, at least the primary point about this passage about cutting off the hand and cutting off the foot and gouging out the eye. We tend to read that passage and we think individually about ourselves and we say, I'm just going to cut off the parts that make me keep doing the things we want to do. And that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about the full body of Christ, the same image that the Apostle Paul uses. And it's very much more clear when you go to other parallel passages, like in Luke 9, that Jesus is talking about the people in the church who are leading other people into sin. Not just your children, but the people who are new to the faith. The people who are messed up in their theology, but at least they love Jesus, and they're coming to church every week, and they're hearing the word. And you see now how this connects to last week's sermon where our pride rises up because we think we're the righteous ones, and we think so little of other people, and we get frustrated with their constant struggles. And Jesus is telling his disciples that pride, that pride is a worse sin than those other things that you think so much about in your own life. Causing other people to sin. Now, now don't hear me wrong. Those other things are bad and they cause problems. And just like we were just talking about, we need to deal with them because, because, look, sin is insidious and it grows and it brings death. It's like the salt that just keeps piling up in those dead places. And John Owen, that famous theologian back from hundreds of years ago, he said this simple phrase that's, that's always stuck with me, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be kill- killing you. And I think that Jesus is speaking to us as individuals here as well, and wanting us to identify the things that lead us into temptation. And don't go to that corner, don't go to that bar, don't go to those places. he's much more concerned with the whole body of Christ functioning together and those who are more mature in Christ knowing how to act not just with the children but with the ones who are casting out demons not knowing what they're doing The ones who are doing things in Jesus' name. Now, I'm not justifying the ones who are doing it for their own gain because there are plenty of pastors and people out there who claim to be casting out demons and healing people for their own personal gain. And that, that takes you right back to those who cause one of these little ones to sin. Not justifying that at all. Jesus is equipping his disciples to be the mature ones. 
Because after this week in Jerusalem, they're going to be the ones who are teaching others. Jesus is calling us out of that immaturity and into maturity, but it's a maturity that is defined not by following all of God's rules, like the young rich ruler and saying, I checked that box, now come on guys, catch up. It's defined as one who is patiently leading and teaching the little ones, children, and the young ones in their faith. Who's hearing Jesus' teaching and staying with him in this relationship and preserving, right? Like salt, preserving not just themselves, but the peace of Jesus' church, who he calls his bride, who he loves. Are we that type of salty preservative of Jesus, his church, and its peace? That's the challenge for Jesus' 12 disciples also for all of us as his disciples. Now let me close just with this one last thing. Those covenants that God made, lasting covenants, two things that are consistent about those covenants. That human beings constantly break their end of the deal. But that God keeps his end of the deal. And the thing that Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us is that we're going to break our end of that covenant deal over and over. We are not the salt unless we're salted by Jesus in his covenant faithfulness. We will continually fail and become dead salt if we're not constantly being replenished by Jesus' living salt, if you The gospel isn't just instructions, it is fuel for those instructions. It's refreshment when we fail. It's a reminder that God's love is not conditioned on our love for Him and others. It's conditioned on believing in Jesus. Woe to those, Jesus says, who causes one of these little ones who believes in me. It's a sin. Let's pray. Now, Father, we live in a world that is disposable. Does not last, is not preserved. Even our relationships seem to come and go so quickly. But this is not the way it's supposed to be. Will you make us the salt of the earth? 
agents of peace and of preservation and longevity and help us to run this race without growing weary because of Jesus' saltiness in us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.